0: this program to bring you a special report
1: welcome to south of the eight how's everyone doing no seriously how are you doing i mean we are going through so much i mean of course i don't have to tell you that you know that but i'm genuinely concerned for you are you doing okay are you eating enough are you walking enough try to put your phone down stay off of twitter stay off of facebook (laughs) try not to have a family argument things are rough and and they don't seem like they'll be changing anytime soon that said all we can do is try to stay informed and and try to make a change because we can make a change and we will things will get better one of the few pleasant memories i've had from high school was taking english freshman year with mr smith at chula vista high And for anyone that's aware, he was an amazing teacher, truly. And I remember one of the few things I learned from him because I hardly paid attention is that you can always overanalyze your past and completely ruin it. (laughs) He did it with Disney for us. And I guess now I do it with everything pretty much. One of those things being my education. I mean, we all like to think that we had the perfect childhood and we had everything at our disposal, right? I mean, we didn't—we don't know better at the time and we think that we have the best. But sometimes that just isn't the case. And education is the theme of today's podcast. It's not meant to be super heavy, but there is a lot of things that can improve and i believe that one of the ways we make that change is by starting a conversation so today uh, my guest is jessica bernal a college advisor for the south bay area and also my executive producer we have a lovely discussion about what we perceive as normal in school that maybe wasn't we discuss a little bit about first gens and the imposter syndrome And then we just get into it um, about systemic problems that do exist in our current education system. So with that, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and you know, stay safe out there guys. (music) Jessica, thank you so much for doing this. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself?
0: my name is jessica i am a college advisor uh, with a university outreach program we outreach to high schools um, most of the high schools that we outreach are here in the south bay uh, we outreach to low-income first gen students that are pursuing a career in a higher education
1: that's great it's good to know there's some kind of resources for first generation students or just students in general that may not have that support at home and I, when I say support, I don't mean, andale, mijo, go, go, go to college. But being able to answer questions that just aren't online, you know. Sometimes it's better to have someone that's gone through the process as yourself. Congratulations, by the way. You're a 2020 <laughs> coronavirus uh, graduate. And yes, I am.
0: <laughs>
1: so and much like yourself uh, that's gone through this process and are continuing to be in, in education, I believe it's, uh, it's good to have those sort of mentors and counseling because sometimes, again, we don't have it at home. We don't have it in our, in near us, and it's always good to be able to ask questions. So with that, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, which has always sort of boggled my mind since I heard about it, was I remember uh, so I wor- I've worked in EMS for about five years, and EMS is mainly white uh, for people that – I mean, I hate to say it that way, but it, it is. It just mainly is male, and it's mainly white. Whenever I talk to my coworkers and we would talk about our high school experience, it always boggled their mind that I would say that we had military recruiting, actively recruiting in our high schools. Having us do pull-ups for, for uh, whatever, carabiners or whatever. And to them, it's just like, no, we just got maybe one meeting a year, senior year, and that was kind of it. And it made me realize, like, wow, that kind of seems predatory. Again, not to say that military isn't a viable option. It is. But in some instances, especially in lower income schools, the military may take advantage of the fact that some people see their future as non-existent and and try to recruit those people into a military, maybe even to a, a contract that they can't get away from, right?
0: Yeah, I, I do see that in students a lot, that they, they come to us very confused on what the recruiters are telling them. I see that the... The main catch that they get out of recruiters are the financial aspect. They, they promise that if they serve X amount of years, after that, they're going to get their education paid for. And most of the times when we talk to students, we, we really want to dive into why is the reason they're thinking of military. Is it because their whole family has been in the military and they're really respected and they want to, you know, have the rank that their father had? In the military that their grandfather had or is it because they're concerned about how they're going to pay for an education and they have this person telling them hey if you join the military we're going to pay for your school and when it's reasons like that then we we help them we guide them towards there's other options you know there's financial aid there's there's other things that you could do scholarships things like that and you'll be surprised how they walk out the office Knowing that military is no longer an option because now they know that there's money out there that is offered to them to to get an education to get a degree. Um, so I I do agree that they do take advantage of a lot of students, um, and we do see that in a lot of low income schools. And it is for this for that reason because they know that they could most likely recruit more students in that kind of scenario. Um, yeah, so that's just a tiny little bit of it, but it's definitely a problem. I think students yeah. need to be more informed um, than just believe what you know what they're hearing.
1: So yes, there is a little bit of an issue uh, where sometimes that military recruiting can be a little predatory. And I just don't just mean it as like a as a political thing. Many times uh, these military recruiters talk to us, you know, because our coach, uh, I was in wrestling and a lot of times we'd have sit-ins with the military and they just the amount of things they throw at you to make it seem so—I don't know—so much fun and like it's very, you're gonna very get the honestly, best of it. You're
0: gonna you're gonna have a really good experience, and that's right. The only way that you're gonna have a great future after high school.
1: Right? Yeah, pretty much. And a lot of the time, again, I know some people that went into military. Some of them loved it. Some of them didn't. You know, but the thing is that you, unlike a job or unlike any other career, you can't change your mind after a year. You're locked in for four to six to eight years sometimes. And it's illegal. It's illegal to try to walk away from something like that. So I feel like the consequences aren't weighted when people are being recruited. You know, it's all the flash up front uh, without giving them pretty much another option. But that said, I feel like another thing that are in some schools, fortunately, we didn't see them in my school, but are in many, especially African-American dominant schools are student resource officers. Can you tell me a little bit about that for those who may not know what those are?
0: Um, yeah, so student um, school resource officers, they are basically police in schools. Um, they, their main goal is to have the campus safe to have a safe school environment for the students um, they many schools decided to bring police and they're completely stationed that's the difference it's it's not you know that they're just calling 911 and police shows up no their police officers are completely stationed in in the site um, and this started to keep the campus safe um, after the many incidents of shootings in schools. They thought that, you know, having someone there that could defend the students, parents would feel safer, you know, all of that. It sounded great. I would say between 1990 to like the early 2000s, it, it became a big thing where parents felt safe and it was necessary to have security at, their, at, at the schools. Um, But what started happening is that when, when kids got in trouble back in the day, you know, you would talk back to your teacher and you would get sent to the office and then, you know, the principal would have a talk with you. If you got in a fight or whatever, the the principal would, you know, maybe suspend you or whatever they thought was going to be your, your quote unquote punishment. But now, whenever kids did something in the classroom, they were not being sent to the office. They would get the the, the school resource officer, which is, you know, kind of like the police from the school, come into the classroom and, and deal with the situation. And what this is doing to the students is that you have a little third grader that, you know, doesn't want to get out of the class, and now he sees an officer come in and get him out of that class. And what message is that sending to that little kid, you know, at that really young age? So what we started seeing was an increase in suspensions, and especially in students of color. So black students are three times more likely to get expelled than a white student. And also, if we start looking into research, it shows that black students are being spelled for reasons that are not provable, Right. Kind of like talking back to your professor or vandalism where white students are being expelled for reasons that are actually provable, like smoking and being cut smoking or being, you know, actually in action doing something bad. And that's where you start seeing the difference. And, you know, who are they really, are they really keeping the school safe or are they just targeting you
1: know, certain students. And well, I I mean, for those who haven't seen the student resource officer brutality videos, it is, it is heartbreaking to say the least. I mean, it's a grown man beating and pulling and arresting minors. I mean, there's no other way to say it. These are high school students and it's pretty much, I understand that the reason it was started for, and especially with uh, the amount of shootings that we see in school, a lot of times, these type of resource officers uh, seem like the uh, the reason, reasonable answer to the many shootings that we see. That said, that's not what they become. They become muscle for the school again to push these like systemic problems. Or if you're of color, you're a problem, right? Or again, things could be so subjective because you don't have to prove anything. It's not actual law. It's the it's the Teachers were it against yours. So again, talking back. I mean, being dragged out of a class for talking back seems ridiculous. It's not right to talk back, but that's not how you handle it. So I feel like a lot of the, the times these resource officers just seem like muscle uh, uh, to say the least, right? So so this, is, this was all implemented with, uh, I believe the no tolerance bill. Can you tell me a little bit about that and where it started?
0: Um, yeah, so the no tolerance bill that started in 1994 and this is a bill that was passed by um, Bill Clinton at the time, that's, that's, so the no tolerance was no tolerance for guns allowed in schools. And that was very necessary because, you know, guns are not supposed to be in schools. You know, there's children around, children that don't know how to use a gun that could, you know, find the gun somewhere and and misuse it. But what happened was the schools started using that as a way of no tolerance in anything. Um, little things that could have been prevented, that could have been, you know, just with detention, were, were taking, they were escalating situations really bad where students now had, you know, this record that would send them to juvenile detention, something more serious. And now now, whenever a minor ends up in juvenile detention, it's very hard to get out of that system because then they get older they get into high school and they're they're set back in their education they're they're falling behind because the time that they're away locked up in juby and whenever they try to come back to their community and to their school environment it's very different and what started as a, okay, we're, we're trying to have a safe school environment. It started being a, you know, we're, we're labeling kids. of so your you know, you, you have behavioral issues, so you're a problem to us. So let's send you away. And then whenever you try to come back, you know, we'll find excuses to send you away again. And that's not the way it's supposed to go because they're behavioral issues. Or any kind of like behavioral problems that a student might be having shouldn't be just put aside and avoided. And if you were to ask the kids, like, are they feeling any safer with the officers around? Right. Is it because that's that's the purpose, right? That's the purpose of them being there to to keep the campus safe. Right. But they're not safe because even those students that are not doing anything bad, but they're watching, they're little classmate get dragged out of the classroom or you know get you know punished or suspended that stays with them as well so it's not creating a safer environment for education it's it's just creating fear it's, it's creating that identity to some students that this is who i am
1: right like there's not going to change so it's yeah. not it's not crazy to think that once you step out of because this goes as low as what, elementary school?
0: Yeah, elementary school. Mm-hmm. Wow,
1: that's insane. So this goes from that perpetual fear of authority and distress for the police, starts at elementary school, let's say, and then it goes into high school uh, middle school, high school, and then you enter the real world with that mindset, right? Now you're thinking, shit, yeah, if I get in trouble now, again, much like the rest of my life, someone's going to come and take me. And yeah. it, it becomes a... Uh, uh, perpetual fear and almost like paranoia I just don't think that you you'd want that in in your population I mean it just seems very it just seems extreme to say it but that's that's kind of where it leads to I feel like
0: yeah and and ever since SROs were part of school suspension rates started going up more kids were getting suspended they Everybody knew that it was not helping that that technique of wanting a safer school was definitely not being achieved by an SRO right. there. And then later on, like in the 2000, 2012, 14, um, there was a change in the educational system where they and, and actually California still practices that, um, that they they start doing things differently where they believe that there had to be different measures and not so intense and extreme where kids were, you know, getting suspended so easily. Um, And there was a good amount of decrease in suspensions ever after that. There was, I think it was like 20% in four years where suspension rates were lowered just by not, suspending kids as often for things that were not necessary there there was even little um like um groups that they would make where it was more of a you know like oh like a conversation of what was really happening between the student and the teacher and coming up with you know what was really the problem um so things there was improvement
1: so yeah there was so up to up to 20 what is it? Twenty eight, fourteen, then? Yeah. Twenty well, starting twenty twelve, twenty fourteen, leading up to about twenty sixteen. Could we say that it stopped?
0: Mm-hmm. So, what?
1: Tell me a little bit of what happened under 2016,
0: 2017. So after that, um, that's when the Trump administration came in, and they thought that it was that the this that there was a threat in the students by being around students that could be risky. And they didn't, they, they thought that those, the measures that were being taken back in like 1990s with the SROs and all of that, that that was necessary. And that that had to happen again in order to keep the the school safe. And it actually happened after a shooting in Florida in 2016. And that that's when the Trump administration said, you know, that, we we there's no other way to do this than have the SROs on campuses and and take these measures. So then that started happening again, and, and schools started having you know falling back into the no tolerance feel. Right. And and we still see that in in like like you mentioned there there's there's videos out there that you you do see how you're now supposed to be treating a little kid like that that's not gonna help them at all
1: yeah I believe uh as of last year or the year before that i I hate that I don't have the actual year but there was a viral video of a six year old getting put in handcuffs in the in the sorry the principal's office and that video uh, that video made the rounds because it was it was upsetting to see such a young kid in handcuffs and they're like whoa you weren't there there was he was talking back and there was this and we're trying to get him suspended. And we'll, and the big question I remember is like, why is he even in handcuffs? And again, it sort of brings up to light these student resource officers. It's like, why are they even a thing? And I understand, uh, especially because of our political climate, that, that things like uh, SROs may be necessary to deter things like shootings. But I believe that that's where they're, that's where their job should end at stopping shootings and not being the muscle for teachers or for administrations to try to scare their school straight. It just, it just shouldn't be that way. And unfortunately that's the way it is. But uh, I remember like back in high school, um, which is a completely different story. <laughs> so back in high school, I, uh, I remember when I was um, in senior year, I wasn't sure what what I was going to do after high school, to be to be quite honest. I was an average student, and I don't know. Like, I guess college could have been an option, but I just wasn't sure. And I remember when I went into counseling, I remember my counselor told me, what is it that you want to do? I said, I want to be a fireman. And they're like, oh, yeah, you can figure that out in community college. That's not that's – not, I'm not going to answer that here. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah, here. So, like, these are the community college. You can ask them, and you'll be good. And I remember walking out of there like, oh, shit, all right, I guess – I guess that's all I'm doing, (laughs) but it just goes to show that I personally didn't have a a good counseling or mentorship in school. And I'd hate to get, I'd hate to say that it was all because of my counselor, but now looking at it, maybe she just didn't have the time or resources to be the counselor that that she was meant to be, you know? So with that said, uh, tell me a little bit about the issues we see with that in high schools leading towards college education.
0: Yeah, especially the high schools in the South Bay, that's, um, they, they don't have much resources to guide students. And the program that I work for, that's what we focus on to reach out to students that want to continue in education and, and really have no idea because the, the counselors, like you, like you were mentioning, they, they don't give a lot of time to their students, and that's because they have a large number of students under their workload. And just looking at the numbers that, of students that they have, they, they can't provide the best assistance to every single student. And it shouldn't be like that. I think they, they should have less number of students where they can really have that one-on-one time and really support them and believe in them. Um, but for many high schools, you you really never get to know your counselor one-on-one. You know, you never get, you just, you're you just sitting there and they give you the schedule and then that's it. Yeah. And that's not what a counselor is there for. You know, they're there to really like, you know, give you an understanding of what's life after, you know, after, especially senior year, you know, you're, you're leaving that high school. So you, they need to give you like a little bit of guidance. Um so there is many programs that do go to high schools and they try to outreach and recruit. Another thing is that many of those programs do want to recruit you so there are university programs where like okay we'll help you with everything that you want to know about college but you need to apply to our school.
1: Oh, to our school. Yeah.
0: yeah and there might be a chance that are you know the school will take them or not but regardless if they take them or not they they did get assistance on financial sure. aid on other campuses on how to how to apply on the personal statement or if they have to do any essay so it's there there's resources that do help students but not all students usually the the outreach recruitment university programs only talk to the high highest gpas but there's there's a big gap because there's many students that are doing well that, you know, that do have talent, that they could be. It's just that just because their GPA is not reflecting that, they don't get the chance to really meet with, a, with an advisor that's really going to help them. Um, so, so, yeah, there, there's, there's a huge gap on, on who gets that guidance and who doesn't. And especially in in all of our communities, like here, you know, Chula Vista, Sweetwater High School. And there's a lot of students that are first generation, that their parents, you know, some of them graduated high school. Some of them didn't, but most of them don't have a college education. So they, they, they really don't know how to do things. They don't know how to apply. They don't know the difference between community college, CSU, UC. And when you throw all of that, all at once to a senior, of course, he's going to be like, whoa, like, what's what's all these choices I have to make? And I'm 17, you know, like, what's, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of information. It's overwhelming. And I think that's when a lot of students don't know what decision to make, what major to do, or, or like, you you know, like you were saying, like, oh, I want to do this, you know, I want to be a firefighter. But then you have no idea on, like, where right. do you even start? Like, what step do I take? Like, community college, is that it? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of lack of information. There's not enough guidance. Um, and and it's really sad. It's really sad because you you do see that our students need that support you know they need that hope and for them for someone to believe in them and it makes such a difference when even if you know your counselor was you know was not helpful if no one was helpful but if you had that one teacher that told you oh you would look great in that firefighter you know gear that would you know that would mean the world to you so it's like even yeah even smaller like small little things like that make a difference in in students
1: There is some resources that come to our schools and they try to recruit certain people. But again, it's only certain people. And a lot of times uh, some middle grade people, some average, some of us average people just needed that extra little push to know why college was important or how we could do college. Because a lot of times we're told that maybe it wasn't an option, you know, because, again, I remember being told how expensive it was and how hard it was but I was never told that I could do it. I was just told that it was expensive and that it was hard. So then I I made the math and I was like, well, why would I waste my money if I'm not going to make it, you know? And I feel like it leads a lot to this, like, sometimes, even if you do make it into college, this sort of imposter syndrome. Um, I know we met, we've talked about that before, but can you talk to me a little bit about imposter syndrome for first gens in college?
0: Um, yeah, so how we were saying that first gen, they, they have a lot of barriers. They have a lot of barriers because they, they're doing something that no one in their family has done before. So they have no idea what they're doing, but they're, but they're there, you know, and they're trying to figure figuring everything out. And what happens very often is that they get an imposter syndrome. And what that is, is that they feel like that they lied or that someone's going to find out that their accomplishments are not real and they don't belong there. And, and they're, you know, they're going to class and everything, but they're, but they're deep inside. They think, wow, like one day someone's going to find out that I don't belong here, that maybe I'm not as smart as they think. And they're going to kick me out of the school. And that really affects the student because it, it makes them it makes them a little bit like it changes their attitude towards school. They, they feel like they're not, they're not supposed to continue in higher education.
1: Right. No. And I feel like a lot of this could come from the culture shock that is college. Right. I mean, just because state is, um, is where it is, it doesn't mean that it reflects the population surrounding it. Right. I mean, you're as uh, let's put it this way, as someone uh, of color walking into a class that is majority white and probably is going to Miami for spring break, it could be a little, it could be a little scary. And, and I completely understand why people would have imposter syndrome. You know, it's, it's that feeling of not belonging. Right. And especially when, when things like, you know, Oh, you're only here because of affirmative action or this or that. I feel like that's when, again, those resources would have been great starting in high school or starting even younger than that, because then we'd feel like we'd belong. We feel like we are supposed to be there and this is just something that much like they deserve to be here, I deserve to be here.
0: Yeah, and, and that's the thing that you, you know that you, you have what it takes, but very often the people around you do make you doubt that. And we do see that in a lot of of students that come in to us. And that's why it's very important to get a mentor, you know, to get that. If, If at home you don't have, as a first gen, if at home you don't have that support, that understanding, it's very important to get that, you know, somewhere else, maybe with a mentor, maybe with your peers, but just to stay connected that that's not the reality. It's, you know, you do belong there. You do have the right to be there. You know that the, the reality that we all deserve education. If that's what you choose to do, that's you know you you deserve it.
1: Yeah, and I feel like a lot a lot of that pressure or that sort of uh a sort of what feeds the imposter syndrome is a lot of people don't have a traditional route to college. Movies and shows and media tells us that you're supposed to get that letter in the mail, live in school go for four years and then graduate right there's this there's this like notion that it has to be that way or no way otherwise oh yeah i guess you went to college i remember talking to you a little bit about this and you told me that people are literally labeled when they enter to the college um from a different route correct
0: yeah so there's the non-traditional students so it, it's basically it, if you're a traditional student you graduated high school, went straight to a four-year university, graduated, and you're ready to enter the workforce. And the only students that really get to do that are, you know, very privileged students that have no distractions, that, you know, are just set for that route of, you know, you're going to do a college degree. We know it, you know exactly like what your degree will be in, you won't change your major or anything like that. So that's the traditional student route. And then the other side is the non-traditional. And if you think about it, most students fall under the non-traditional route. And, and those are the students that are, are, you know, looked at a little bit different because even if you went to a community college and transfer over, which basically the same classes are offered at a community college, are offered in, in, at a university, right. you're taking the same class, you know, just at different institutions, and you're still you you get to a four year and they're like oh you know you came from a community college you know and, and they think that your level of education is a little bit different um right. when so it's, it's like really almost, not
1: it's almost like condescending then
0: yeah Despite definitely the fact yeah. that
1: again it's the same classes you're taking the same test it's just the fact that you took it at again there is so many negative connotations to Doing it in college in more than four years, or taking a community college year, or even starting at community college, or even like stopping in the middle of your education to say have a family and then come back. There, there is so many different students that do that. That it sucks that there is such a labeling and such a again negative connotation towards that. It's derogatory, and I, again, I don't see the need for it. Right, you're students. That's that's what you should be labeled as. You're a student. And there shouldn't be any more questions asked because at the end of the day, you're all there to do the same thing, which is get a higher education. It's these labels that I think may be the problem.
0: And one more thing that you were saying, it's, it's a culture shock, you know, that as a student, there's, there's a lot going on because you, you might be first gen. You know, it might be your first time ever at a four-year university. You might, you know, be a transfer student or a commuter. That, that's another thing. There's, there's a lot of things that go on in college because even there's a difference between the culture of students that live on campus and then students that commute to campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so there, there is a lot of labels. But in the end, you get out of college what you want to get out of college. And you're there for your own purpose and you believe in that purpose that set you because no one, no one's really forcing you, you know, like most first gen, no one's forcing you to go to college. Right. You know, most of the time you're either paying your own tuition and being in debt or you might be getting a scholarship or grant. but no, no one's really forcing you to wake up and go to school. You're doing it for your own, for your own benefit, for your own belief that it will that it will help you in the long run. And it is that purpose that keeps you going every single day. And 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 that's what you need to focus on. It's like, you know, I have this vision of what I want to do with my life. And that's that's why I'm going to keep going and and see what I get out of it.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, I feel like college nowadays isn't an option. College is now what a high school degree was 10 years ago. And unfortunately, college, of course, is not like high school, where you can just go to the closest one to you. It's an ish, It's it's expensive, and it takes away time and resources that a lot of us may not have. So with that said, from your experience, what is the best thing that you got from college? If you were trying to sell me on college, what what would you say?
0: Well, I want to start off by by what you were saying about the college being now like it, what a high school diploma was. And that is very true where college is getting very competitive. Um, you know, after, I think it started after World War II, that's when, before World War II, only about 10% of Americans would get a college degree. And that was basically because a lot of things were family businesses where you know you grew up in this family if they had that business you you didn't needed a college degree because your uncle would teach you everything you have to know about finances but then there was this switch in history where just World War II happened they came back they had their GI Bill a lot of people started going to college getting degrees and things changed you know things just changed and admissions really went up and now it's, it's really, it, it's really expected if you want to, like, I guess employers just get a lot of applications and they can't really see everything one-on-one, you know, they can't see every resume and they can't interview every person. So it kind of became a thing where, okay, you know, what's, who has a better chance? And and that's a lot of time. That's how colleges be over like, oh, you know, well, I have this college education, so maybe that's gonna set me off for a better opportunity or a better network. Um, that's how a lot of people see college, and part of it, it is true, but there's so much more that you get out of college. There's there's a lot of self growth that you do. Um, I mean, I remember being eighteen year old, you know, little high school graduate that had no idea what I wanted to do with life and in college you do a lot of adulting you you do you grow you you mature with the years it's a first taste of liberty if I'm doing this for myself um there's a lot of it it changes your perspective I think it definitely changes your perspective on how you view the world um I don't I don't know who I would be if I didn't go to college, if I just went straight to the workforce, you know, what kind of experiences I've had. I know that I'll probably ended up in the same place doing a similar job that I do now. So yeah, so definitely college is not just for the printed degree, because that really has no meaning. It's just a piece of paper. But the experiences that you live within your college experience, the experience, the the people that you meet, the mentors that you can create, and it is a lot of time investment. It's money and it's time investment that you, that you're giving into this. But yeah. as much as you put into your college degree, it's kind of what you're going to get out of it. So if you're the if you're the person that really wants to be involved and really wants to you know get to know internships and things like that, then you're set up for you know for a good. You know, possible job at the end. But if you're the student that kind of just goes to class and goes home, you know, there's really not much there. Um, but I think college is definitely good resources. It does give you the resources, but you really have to go look for them because they're not just going to put them in front of you. Yeah.
1: And sometimes, uh, from my understanding, even when you look for them, sometimes those resources aren't there, though, right? Tell me how a school named after an indigenous tribe, right, the Aztecs, just open a Latinx resource center. That seems, it boggles my mind. Just the fact that you can carry the name so proudly, but refuse to give a people of the Latinx descendants a resource center. That just seems, it seems insane to me.
0: Um, I, I'm a SDSU alumni, so I, I was there and we did not have a Latinx resource center. And I remember when, when I transfer over, I, I remember visiting all the resource centers. There's, there's plenty of them. There's the Black Resource Center, the uh, Women's Resource Center. There's, there's a lot of them. And I remember being excited to like see something Chicano, something, you know, as a Chicana, you know, you want to see some, some community, you know that cuz that that's a thing that like you you're always trying to find community within a huge university cuz there's so many students that you want to find, you know, your your own safe place. And I came to find out that there was no resource center and at that time I was taking a Chicano Chicana studies class and it was something that we would always talk about and we're like, wow, like You know, it's 2018 and there's no resource center. And the EOP office did have an undocumented center and it was a very small room. I remember I I went once and it was a very, very small room. And then time later, I came to find out that the EOP did the undocumented center, you know, just as like a given space of their own office but it's not, it, it, it doesn't provide the same resources as a Latinx, you know, resource center. You know, that's just, you know, that's, you know, undocumented. And we, we still needed a Latinx center. And it took some time, you know, for SDSU to approve, um, right, to right. give the budget and, and all of that to be able to open one. And even if they open one, I was kind of, I don't want to say disappointed because I'm very happy that they have one, but it is also inside the library. It's not Your own. You know, just like, it's not our own building or our, like our own little spot. They basically right. just put a part of the school library. They just now call it the Latinx Resource Center. So there's still a lot of work to be done.
1: But it's not um, like a step in the right direction.
0: Right? Yeah, they, they have a, they have a lot of uh, plans on how to make it bigger, um, but yeah. But it's funny to think how you know they they are the aspects and they didn't have a Latinx resource center. And the thing is that those resource centers they really help students, you know, because like how we were talking before about the imposter syndrome and all of that. There's there's still a good amount of students that feel like they don't belong. And this is a school that we're about thirty four percent, um, like Latinx, and that's that's a big number, you know. Once you, I believe SDSU is like about thirty four percent Latinx, probably like sixty percent white, yeah, and then you know they they put other races and, but thirty four percent of the school consider themselves latinets yeah and they didn't have that you know that spot yeah that representation in the school where they they felt like wow you know this this is our this is our place where we where we can you know find our community
1: yeah i feel like again like you mentioned it goes back to the imposter syndrome representation is so important and it doesn't it doesn't get the credit that it deserves you know it comes with first generations it comes with anyone really that just feels a little bit outside of their comfort zone. Sometimes it's good to have a a place like that. And I'm glad that at least after so many years, um, there is finally a resource center. Unfortunately for you, it was towards the end of your career at SDSU. But that said, I mean, it's seeds planted for a better tomorrow. And I'm hoping to see more things like that happen at a place like state, Uh, especially when now more than ever, it looks like it's surroundings, you know, Again, it's still sixty percent white in a neighborhood that you, we would say isn't predominantly white. If you take away the students, you know, I was surprised to see how close it was to to National City. You know, if you just go all up on Euclid, as soon as the start, the houses start looking nice. You're like, oh, I'm in student living. <laughs> anyway, Jessica, thank you so much for doing this again. Is there something uh, you'd like to end on? Hopefully, a, a good note.
0: I'm um, sure. Uh- stay safe out there. We are under a pandemic and education right now, as we speak, it's a hot mess. You know, schools are trying to go fully online and they're still they're still haven't figured out what's gonna happen after summer break. Um, so if you have anyone in, in school, if you have little siblings or um, if you're a parent and you have kids in school, be patient be adapt you know adapt to the new way of learning of your kids learning
1: again thank you for so much for doing this and uh, have a good rest of your day
0: thank you